1: Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Catillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased and indeed honored to have with us Master Historian and Author Jeremy Black. Jeremy Black is Professor of History at the University of Exeter Emeritus. He is without a doubt the most prolific historian writing in the Anglophone world today, having written well over 150 books. And today we're discussing one of his newest books, The French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars, Strategies for a World War, published by Roman and Littlefeld. Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Professor, why did you write this book?
0: Because having written a book on strategy in the 18th century, and also a general history of strategy, I both wanted to take the first forward and to amplify the general arguments in the second.
1: What do you mean exactly when you employ the term strategy in the book?
0: Well, that's a very good question. I mean, as you know, in that period, the term was only just slightly coming into use, principally uh, in France. I use it in the modern sense rather than in terms of the vocabulary of the period.
1: Would it be true to say that you discern more continuity than discontinuity in terms of operation and tactics in the period that the book covers?
0: Yes, I think that's very true. I think that there has been a rather uh, limited approach to uh, military history in a sort of teleological developmental fashion, which puts too much of an emphasis on supposed revolutions, either revolutions in the political world and their supposed consequences militarily, or supposed military revolutions or a combination of the two. And I'm more inclined, as you say, uh, and I've tried to argue it in a number of books, to look at themes of continuity and to also see changes as occurring within paradigms rather than through transforming paradigms.
1: Why did the Brunswick Offensive of the summer of 1792 fail
0: well, again, as with many things, this is a matter of multiple factors. I mean, as you know, Charles, there is a tendency in simplistic historians, um, or maybe brighter historians, but just who are lazy, to going for a simplistic account, which it tends to be monocausal. Uh, there are a whole host of factors affecting the uh, the stop of the advance at Valney. Um, there is the extent to which the Prussian army was already troubled by dysentery, supply problems, the strain of advancing through the Argonne. Um, there is also the fact that it was numerically very much outclassed by the French revolutionary forces deployed uh, opposite to it. So you don't need to envisage some necessary new age of warfare in order to explain why brunswick stopped that leads completely separate to the question of how far the prussians were growingly concerned not so much by france but by developments in poland and in particular a fear that they would miss out in the second coalition in poland
1: so that would explain their failure as opposed to in 1792 as opposed to their success in Holland in 1788 uh, 1787
0: 1788 Well yeah in 1787 when Brunswick advances as you correctly say on Amsterdam I mean the scenario is different and the na- the nature of the opponent is different um but also there are no distractions for the Prussians at all and I think that's a significant factor I mean generally forces do better in war um if there is a relatively simplistic political goal across a relatively narrow time framework and in terms of Prussian policy and strategy insofar as one can distinguish between them in 1792 it's a much more uh, complex multivalent situation
1: What explains the relative success of the French in the period 1793 to 1795?
0: Well, I think that's again an excellent question um First of all as you know um depending upon where you stop the period or where you there is sometimes more success than others so in other words if you were to stop it at the end of november 92 you would present a very successful uh, series of recent french advances If you were to stop it in the summer of 1793, the situation looks far less sanguine from the French point of view. But if you were to stop it at the end of 1794, it looks much better from the French point of view. So first of all, I think one has to be clear, there is not an automatic ascendancy. Secondly, drawing on what we were talking about in our last um, topic, Um, last question, Uh, there is the multiplicity of political considerations. Russia does not come into the war against France until the War of the Second Coalition. Uh, And partly due to that, there is a significant diversion of Prussian attention, which I think is an important factor. You could argue... we could debate it, that the British devoted too much of their energy militarily to campaigning in the Caribbean, the West Indies, rather than in um, the low countries. So there are a number of factors. As far as the uh, more tactical and operational ones are concerned, um, I think it's fair to say that there were battles in which French revolutionary forces succeeded but again, one has to be c- careful in one's analysis. I mean, your map on November the 6th, 1792, um, which is the battle after which the French overran the Austrian Netherlands, what we would now call Belgium, you can see that as a triumph for column assaults on Austrian forces deployed in linear formation. Yes, but you can also point out that the French were more than twice as numerous as the Austrians. So I think one has to be aware uh, and, and incidentally, also on the battlefield in which they could use their numbers. Some battlefield superiority in numbers is not particularly helpful. Um, so I think that you have to be cautious about assuming there is an automatic superiority for French tactics. The historian Gunther Rottenberg, who I knew uh, now last dead, um did an analysis of battles between the French and the Austrians in the 1790s, of which there were many, and argued that roughly half were won by the French and roughly half were won by the Austrians. So again, there are many factors in each case, but it would be wrong to see that as simply a triumph for one form of tactics over another.
1: Rothenberg, of course, being an expert on the Austrian uh, army in this period.
0: Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I was once fortunate. I had a visiting chair in the Australian um, Military Academy, and uh, I had his office, and it was very interesting, you know, without meaning to intrude. I pulled open a drawer at one stage in the desk, and it was full of toilet paper, and I asked about this, and it transpired that as a vet, military veteran, which he was, he was always very much committed to the view that one should always have copious supplies of stuff.
1: I see. All right, I didn't know that. Uh, why was the British Army so relatively ineffectual in the period up to
0: 1801? Um, well... Um, I mean, as you know, I mean, 1801 is is a major triumph for it the invasion of Egypt and the defeat of French forces there. And I think it's fair to say that prior to 1801, it depends upon what one's looking at. Um, I mean, I'm not trying to be funny by pointing out that that's the period in which the British finally overcome their major opponent in southern India, uh, Tipu Sultan of Mysore. Uh, who was a formidable military force. um, And that scarcely suggests that the British in some way can't cope. I think it's more that having been driven um, by far larger forces out of continental Europe um, as a result of the French advance in 1795 to 96, thereafter in Europe they're taking part in amphibious assaults some of which are more or less successful and they're also pursuing operations in the caribbean where their major opponent is yellow fever are uh, they not itself unable they are not themselves unable to beat their opponents so i would say um, you know the british have skills but the army is nowhere near as successful or significant in campaigning against france as the navy and i think there's a very big difference um, And, you know, you can point to uh, humiliation, if you like, uh, the British army that goes to Holland um, at the end of the century, 1799, the Grand Old Duke of York, marching his troops famously, as the song proclaimed, up and down hills. Um, But, of course, that's shortly after the British have absolutely smashed the French Toulon fleet at the Battle of the Nile, which rather negates the strategic point uh, of Napoleon having forces in Egypt. So it's not so much that Enchant Britain or the Enchant British military can't succeed. It's that one branch is more significant than the other which remains the case throughout the wars. I mean, it, it, And if you go up to the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815, yes, the British Army does very well at Waterloo alongside its German and Dutch allies. And yes, it is justifiably proud of that achievement as indeed of its earlier achievements in the Peninsular War. But I think it's fair to say that in terms of defeating Napoleon on land, uh, the Austrians, the Prussians, and the Russians have been more consequential um, all of whom are ancien régime militaries, just as the British have been more consequential by far than everybody at sea.
1: Why, I'm sorry, how do you fit the war, British War Minister William Wyndham's intent assassination of Bonaparte? Tactics, operations, or strategy?
0: Well... Any attempt at overthrowing an opposing regime, if you identify its leader as absolutely crucial to that regime, can be seen as all three uh, i mean it is there is a tactical um, task the killing of one person or a small group of people. it requires the operational deployment of force or the subversion of Uh, a group of individuals, and it's designed for strategic effect. So I think all three is the case. I mean, what's interesting is that, um, in one respect, it stems from the parallel British war effort in the 1790s towards France, which is one of subversion and support for royalist conspiracy and risings. And in one respect, this is just taking it forward. Um, I think it's fair to say there is also a sense of Napoleon as an illegitimate ruler um, and somebody that doesn't play by any rules. And I think that is um, a significant one. But um, I think it's also worth pointing, pointing out that the effort made by any of the powers in that period to assassinate the leaders of the others is very limited.
1: Would it be true to say that uh, strategic opportunism, as you term it, was part and parcel of French revolutionary and Napoleonic practice?
0: Yes, I think there is that. I mean, as you know, you've read the book and you're kindly asking questions about it, but others haven't read the book. I mean, what I'm trying to argue in the book, a number of things I'm trying to, to demonstrate. But I'm, also, I'm arguing into Aelia that French revolutionary and even more Napoleonic strategy is deeply flawed by its failure to work with um, the nature of political culture, society, religious conviction um, across Europe. And as a result of it, there is an opportunistic character to it. Now, I would also argue, as you know in the book, that there is a separate source and means of opportunism in terms of the raiding of Europe in a kind of looting system, both in order to finance the military as a whole and to the personal profit of generals and obviously, finally, the Napoleonic family and clientage. And without in any way implying that their ideologies are necessarily similar, there is, of course, a similar pattern in the Third Reich, whereas, as you know, there's extensive work on how Hitler gave uh, large amounts of money and land to Wehrmacht generals to affirm their loyalty. So in some respects, Europe becomes a kind of spoils system for the french which is one form of opportunism but that opportunism is also based in you know you might say any political system is a spoil system you might argue that that's the nature of taxation it benefits some elites more than others but there is no real grounding of it in the napoleonic period or the french revolutionary period in any um, in any attempt to make um a fair or reasonable assessment of the societies with which they're de- dealing
1: why was france unable to rebuild its fleet capacity after 1789
0: um well napoleon tries to rebuild his fleet uh, and goes on trying to do so till towards the end of his period in office i mean in particular one uh, you know in the dockyards at antwerp and venice i mean there's a whole host of problems that affect the french one being that um loss of fighting experience as their as their squadrons are increasingly blockaded into port diminishes the value of uh, those ships that are built. They also have a finite number of sailors, and many of those are captured by the British and held in prisons, including Dartmoor, near where I live. Um, There is also the extent to which British blockade and other aspects of British naval policy limit the supply of naval stores, which crucially come from the Baltic. And that's very important. And also the British very carefully and you know, with use of some force, um, as it were, either take out navies that might cooperate with the French, most obviously the Danish navy in both 1801 and 1807, um, or uh, may take measures to try and ensure that states Um, that the French are trying to overcome uh, Portugal, for example, and subsequently Russia, that their navies are kept outside the hands of France. So what had been a real crisis for the British in 1795-96, when um, in 95 the French take over the Dutch Navy, in 96 they ally with Spain, so the British are put in a really difficult position, analogous to the position they were in from in the last years of the War of American Wars of War of American Independence. And the British, through naval victories, Cape St. Vincent, and Camperdown in ninety seven, the Nile in ninety eight, right that naval balance, but then take steps to further weaken um, the French. Now you could also argue, I have argued. That Napoleon, uh, fundamentally, his conception uh, is land based. He's fundamental, not surprising given his background, uh, an officer. That although he comes from Corsica, his understanding of naval power is limited and principally restricted, I would argue, to the western basin of the Mediterranean. And that um, again, the comparison. I'm not trying to say this to be offensive to people, but again, there is a comparison with with Hitler, you know, uh, who who's who very much has the navy as a secondary um, factor and doesn't understand that uh, the way you build up naval strength is not simply by building ships.
1: Why did Britain agree to terms with France in 1801?
0: Well. Um, the 1802 Peace of Amiens stems from the fact that Britain has been left isolated with Austria having been defe- defeated at Marengo and and are uh, agreeing by the Peace of Linville to leave the War of the Second Coalition. So Britain's left on its own. Now, as you know, there are divisions within the British ministry and British, in British public opinion as to what to uh, do in so far as France is concerned because the peace that is uh, on offer with the French is fundamentally one of retaining colonial, returning colonial gains to France and its allies without any sense, Spain and the Dutch, without any sense that necessarily this peace is going to last and of course it doesn't last Uh, it ends in 1803. Um, But I think it's fair to say that a combination of isolation, exhaustion, uh, the British have been fighting since 93, Uh, there has been an enormous financial burden, economic burden, um, does encourage the Addington ministry to go for peace. Um, I think it's worth saying that this is not uh, one that is supported by all politicians at that period. And I think that's a real problem for, for, for that particular ministry.
1: Why do you dislike Bonaparte as a historical personality? Um, Unlike, say, Andrew well, Yes.
0: Yes. Uh, I think you're right that I don't have a high view of Bonaparte. I mean, dislike him. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm i not socially in his circle, as it were. It's not a question of deciding whether one does or doesn't meet, meet somebody for lunch or chooses to sit somewhere else on the table, um, which is what one might do if one dislikes somebody today. I, I don't admire Bonaparte. I think that he uh, is somebody who as many you know I'm a military historian primarily as with many figures in the history of war um he pursued and he had without doubt ability he pursued war and his ability to exalt himself through war without uh, what i consider a reasonable sense of a wider justice Um, So there's me being a moralistic prig, if you like, and I don't mind that being thrown at me. Um, I think he's had too easy a rap from historians, partly because he's seen as a modern figure, partly because he's important. To the standard French account of themselves and their progress, which is why I have to be so careful about what I say vis-à-vis Hitler, because obviously the Germans and the Austrians, thankfully, don't have the same view about Hitler. Um, But I see him as a warlord. I see him as a warlord who's fundamentally in it for himself. I see him as a warlord who's got excellent PR, and I see many later historians as being overly taken in by the PR.
1: Could it be said that the period from 1809 to 1815 saw a successful allied learning curve, which had the end result of diminishing French military advantages?
0: Well, I mean, not at sea, obviously, there was, you know, no allied need to learn from the French, that's point one. As far as on land is concerned, that argument has been made, as you know, there was a Good work on the core system, for example, um, which argued this in the case of uh, the diagram um, campaign onwards, you know, the Austrians learning to emulate uh, French organizational systems. My own view is that the Russians didn't need to learn very much from the French, that the Russians were actually already uh, in excellent order. They put a lot of pressure on the French in both the War of the Second Coalition and the War of the Third Coalition. In fact, after the hard battles of Friedland and Aalau in 1807, it's really rather surprising that Napoleon chose to attack Russia in 1812. It's not as though he hadn't seen how tough they could be. I mean, rather differently to the uh, German uh, invasion in 1941. Um I think that, and also, you know, the skill of the Russians was shown across a multiplicity of of areas. I mean, between 1806 and 1812, they're not only beating the, uh, or putting a lot of pressure on the French, they're also beating the Turks and beating the Swedes. Um, So I'm not sure that everybody or anybody necessarily needs to learn from the French. The key thing is... They need to cooperate against the French. That is the difficulty. France, remember, if we're talking about France in March 1812, in contradiction to what we think of as France, we're talking about a state that stretches to include Holland, northwest Germany, such obviously well-known French places as Bremen, Hamburg, Lübeck, such well-known French places um, as Illyria, modern coastal Croatia, northern Italy, uh, Barcelona. I mean, France is a formidable in its own right. It's also allied closely um, to uh, Württemberg, Bavaria, Saxony. Uh, you know, it's a problem. Uh, it's, a, it's a military problem, and therefore it can only be confronted on land. By an alliance that can stick together which is difficult um and as you know if napoleon had been more skillful um let's just take the more out of it if he'd been anyway skillful uh, he would have been able to split the alliance against him because met chancellor metternich of austria was only too keen and more worried about the Russians than the the French, was only too keen to retain the alliance with uh, France in 1813 and then subsequently in early 1814 to reach a deal on terms that would leave Napoleon in power. I mean, it's Napoleon's folly, as I make clear in my book that leads to that failure. So I think it would have been fair to say Napoleon could have done better from um, learning from others as to how to run an alliance system as opposed to a system in which you just shout, which again is very reminiscent of the Third Reich.
1: Why was the Duke of Wellington so successful in the Peninsula campaign? Was it a case of his mastery of logistics?
0: Well, I mean, there's many factors. He was very good at logistics. He could read a battlefield. He used he had well-trained soldiers. Um, uh, the um, firepower of British units is important, but also the French were under a lot of pressure from Spanish units, both Spanish regular units and Spanish irregular units. Charles Esdale has, in my view, very correctly made quite a lot of that. Um, And, you know, there is um, secure naval route uh, for supplies back to Britain. Uh, Portugal uh, is an ally. Um, France has a deeply flawed military system uh, in Spain with competing generals, with uh, attempts by Napoleon to micromanage from a distance, um, with a... um, I think it's fair to say they've established a monarch, a new dynasty, but they've not adequately grounded it. Again, a real failure to read Spanish society, not least in a profound anti-clericalism, anti-Catholicism. So I think that uh, it's Wellington's skills and it's also his opponent's weaknesses.
1: Do you agree with Clausewitz that Napoleon's campaign strategy in the Russian uh, War of 1812 was the only one that he was capable of?
0: Uh, Well, he didn't have to invade Russia. (laughs) That's point one. Um, And um, I do think that having, as it were, failed to force a battle of the frontiers, if you wish to use that uh, that term that comes from a different context, it was very unwise to 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 advance further. I mean, I'm a great one at believing that, uh, that you should always be wary of going to war because in any war, both sides think they can win and invariably at least one, but generally both is wrong. Uh, if you do go into war, um, actually do something which you're unable to say, you've succeeded, proclaim success and then get out. Um, I think that it was very foolish what Napoleon chose to do. Incidentally, as an example of literal warfare or warfare on the frontiers, the Crimean War, which is usually regarded as an absolutely flawed uh, war, showed much more sense in terms of conflict with Russia, as did the Russo-Japanese War from the Japanese point of view. Um, so no, I'm, 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 I'm not saying that uh, Napoleon, who lacked that naval power projection, could have replicated those exactly. But I'm simply saying that to Plunge into the interior was, I think, tremendously mistaken. Equally, the large army that he had accumulated would have been difficult to sustain for any particular length of time. So he hadn't really thought, leaving aside the winter, which is, of course, crucial, he hadn't really thought through um, the tension between logistical support and operational. Uh, means and strategic goal. And I think that was a deeply problematic. He was jolly lucky that this didn't lead, as you know, there was a small conspiracy in Paris, the Malay conspiracy, this didn't lead to any sustained attempt to overthrow him. But the practicality was Um, this was an extraordinary failure by all in any state, uh, all in any sense. He blew away an enormous army. I mean, he blew away an army in Egypt, of course, uh, but at least the army in Egypt he blew away wasn't anywhere near as large, and the British allowed its repatriation, Um, but there was no possibility, there would never be any possibility of such a sanguine outcome from the Russian campaign.
1: If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be?
0: Oh, I, it would be, as with the other two books earlier, the crucial importance of strategy. All too much military history is written with a very simplistic grasp, or at least a very simplistic explanation and explication of strategy. In my view, strategy is absolutely fundamental and equally needs to be explained clearly and helpfully. So whereas somebody like Clausewitz close cloaks the discussion of strategy with language, which is pretty opaque for most readers, I think we need to actually explain to people that military history is fascinating, not only as an account as so often is done as the face of battle, but also of the purpose of battle.
1: On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. You've been listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black.
0: Thank you very much.